We are in the book of Second John. We finished First John. We're going to cover Second John this morning. Just 13 verses. So uh, turn to Second John. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. And uh, Mike and Richard have Bibles in their hands. They'd love to bring them to your seats. You can follow along with us. Book of Second John, right after First John, right before Third John. Everybody there? All right, let's read what John has to say, starting in verse 1. The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will abide with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace be, will be with you from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth as we Receive commandment from the Father. And now I plead with you, lady, not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that as you have heard from the beginning, you should walk in it. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ is both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine, do not receive him into your house nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. The title of my study this morning is Love and Truth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together, Lord, to be in your word. And we do love you. We love your word. We know the power that you have in your word to change our lives, Lord. And so as we gather together, Lord, as we study your word, we want to have open hearts, open to change, open to learning Things, Lord, that we've not learned before, open to having a, a closer relationship with you, Lord, as we study your word. And so we pray your blessing upon our time, Lord, that our attention would be given to your word. We pray, Father, that if there's anyone that has joined us, Lord, that does not have a relationship with you, Lord, we pray that they would come to know you as Lord and as Savior, as so many of us do. So, Lord, we thank you for this time. We commit it to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, this obviously is wrote, written by the Apostle John. He also wrote Revelation in the Gospel of John and First and Third John. And so, Second John here is written by John. But it's also the only book in the Bible written to a woman and her kids. To a mom and her kids. And thinking about this, I thought it would be fun to, to, to share with you nine things that a mom would never say. Number one, how on earth can you see the TV sitting so far back? Or this one. Uh, just leave all the lights on. It makes the house look more cheery. Number three. Yeah, I used to skip school a lot, too. How about this one? Don't bother wearing a jacket. The wind chill is bound to improve. What is this? Number five. Go ahead and keep that stray dog, honey. I'll be glad to feed and walk him every day. Number six. Well, if Timmy's mom says it's okay, it's good enough for me. 
Jimmy's mom said so. Number seven, the curfew is just a general time to shoot for. It's not like I'm running a prison around here. Number eight, I don't have a tissue with me. Just use your sleeve. <laughs> Never hear a mom say that. Number nine, last one. Let me smell that shirt. Yeah, it's good for another week. <laughs> Never would you hear them say that. So we have this mom. And no doubt she had written a letter to John with some problems that had come up. See, back in those days, the New Testament, of course, uh, was not available as it is for us today. And so the leaders of the churches were dependent upon certain men to go from town to town, place to place, preaching the truth. Evidently, some of these men had come to the home of this woman, probably in the city of Ephesus, and they'd raised certain doctrinal issues that kind of disturbed her. That was, you know, bothering her. Maybe a red flag came up and she's going, okay, this doesn't seem right. Teaching that went against what she'd been taught. So not knowing quite what to do, she writes to the Apostle John and asks him for counsel. Now, what do I do? I let these guys in my house. Do I continue to feed them and support them? And even though what they're saying, I don't believe, I don't think it's right. Help, John, I need some help. And so this letter is his response to some questions she had asked. And as we go through this, we'll see how he also answers many of the same questions we have today, especially the question about how to, to, to treat people and deal with people who, who are teaching heresies, teaching wrong things, or involved in cults and that type of thing. So if you're taking notes, I've decided to uh, divide my study into five C-sections. So we're going to have a C-section this morning. Number one, compliments. Number two, commandments. Number three, caution. Number four, conduct. And number five, conclusion. Five C's this morning. Number one, John begins with a compliment. He compliments her in expressing his love for her and her kids. He writes, look at verses one through three. Again, he says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, not only I, but also all those who have known the truth, because of the truth which abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with you from God, the Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. See, John is setting the stage. He's bringing the introduction into to answer the lady's problem. And, and two things really jump out at us at this text. Two things that we must take into consideration if you're going to deal with the same problems that this woman was facing at her time. It's truth and love. And you see it there in these verses. Truth and love over and over again. You know, today we live in an age where people have literally abandoned the idea that there is such a thing as, as truth. They bought into, they've adopted the you know, idea that everything is relative, that there's, there's no absolute truth, and they're absolutely convinced that there is no absolute truth absolutely. Which I think about it, it's ridiculous. Because they're going to argue, you know, incessantly that there's no absolute truth, and they're absolutely sure that there's no absolutes. You know, we live in a day and an age today as well where it's no longer safe to go to the news agencies on TV to find out truth. I mean, it's just not there. They twist the truth in order to promote their own political agenda. And you can't trust anymore what you hear on the news. But here John brings it up how important truth is, but he links it with love, truth and love. He says, I have a great love for you founded in the truth. In other words, our relationship. Our fellowship that we have with one another is founded in the truth of God's word and the truth of the love that he has for us. And, and that's how we can have this relationship. Now, I find it interesting that John, he's known as the apostle of love. 
I mean, that's actually emphasized more than any other writer. Oh, John, you know, he's the one that, that Jesus loved and the one that, that, that you, know, you know, leaned on Jesus' breast. And, and so the interesting thing is the fact that he uses the word truth here. 20 times in his gospel, 9 times in 1 John, 5 times in these opening verses in 2 John, and 5 more times in 3 John. So you might say John is the apostle of truth as well. The point being truth and love ought to be the characteristic of every Christian today. Paul tells us in Ephesians 4 verse 15, he says that we're to speak the truth of love so that we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. He takes it to a different Different area. He says we need to speak the truth. That word for speaking there is the word professing. Professing the truth and love. If you actually uh, rendered it, you know, literally, the proper, it's not proper English, but it would read truthing in love. Truth, God, Christ, and love cannot be separated when it comes to Christianity. Jesus is the truth, John 14, 6. God's word is truth, John 17, 17. God is love, 1 John 4, 8. Now, when it comes to us speaking the truth and love, our problem is that many of us, we emphasize one over the other at the expense of the other. We may emphasize truth and center upon doctrinal matters, insisting that the scriptures, they, they need to be followed carefully, but it's at the expense of love. You know, it's like, well, you know, you reject Christ, you're going to burn in hell. You know, Maybe true, okay, but that's really not the way to say it. That's not the way to go about it. You know, we get this, this rigid and cold, judgmental, sometimes even cruel in the way we say things. Even though, again, it may be exactly right what we say, we're just trying to defend the truth of God at the expense of love. On the other hand, there are those of us, those of us who make the mistake of emphasizing love at the expense of truth. You know, that we could just accept everyone and everything and be tolerant in all different directions. It was just, that's just the way we just got to love each other. And the second group reminds me of the story by Dr. Ironside. He used to tell about a man who came to his church and on the way out, as he shook with the pastor one Sunday morning, he said to the pastor, Oh, pastor, I want to tell you what a blessing you've been to me since you've been pastor of this church. While, why, when I first started here, I didn't have any regard for God, man, or the devil. But since you came, I've learned to love all three. That's messed up. It's messed up. You see, the problem is trying to keep truth and love in proper balance. And yet, we see this is modeled so perfectly and so beautifully in the Lord Jesus as He walked in truth and love on this earth. He could deal with such tenderness and love with the depraved sinner, the outcast from society who came to Him. But then with a blistering word, he could scorch a Pharisee until he turned red with shame and all the rottenness in that man's inner life was revealed. And just one on top of the other. He spoke truth, he dealt in love, and he kept them in perfect balance. My point is this. A lot of people who read this letter miss these opening words, and in so doing, they miss the balance of truth and love that's throughout this letter. In fact, John continues. Look at verse 4. He says, I rejoice greatly that I found some of your children walking in truth as we receive commandment from the Father. Now, John's not saying, don't go the other way. John's not saying, it's great that some of your kids are walking in truth, but man, some of your other kids, man, they need prayer. I mean, they're out to lunch. No, that may be the case, but that's not what John is saying here. Evidently, somewhere when John's traveled, he had the opportunity to meet up with some of her kids. And so he's saying to her, man, what a joy it was. To see that you have children that are walking in the truth and they're walking in love and they're serving the Lord. They know the God, the Word of God, and they're walking with the Lord in truth. 
And how refreshing that must have been for that mom to, to hear that, especially in a day like today when, when so many kids are doing their own thing and in this corrupt world. Here John says, lady man, your kids, they've got a great testimony. You know, one of the greatest testimonies to me is not the guy that stands up and says, man, I was a drug addict, I was an alcoholic for 20 years and God has changed me, or I was an atheist for 20 years and, and, and God changed me. And those dramatic testimonies of change are wonderful. They're great. But to me, the greatest testimony is a person who started out as a kid as a Christian and never swerved, never never wavered. You've walked with God through middle school. You've walked with God through high school. You've walked with God through college. I mean, and you've stayed true to Jesus Christ. To me, that's a wonderful testimony. I mean, that testimony beats hand down the other ones. I mean, you're walking with God since you were young. All these years is absolutely wonderful. John says, I rejoice greatly that I have found some of your children walking in truth. That's, that's awesome. What a testimony. See, the point John is making here is that he's complimenting this woman on having a good testimony, her and her kids. Because they, they not only speak what is true, but they also live it as well. Their words match their talk. That's so important that their talk matches their walk. It's like Helen and George, a young married couple who were sitting on a porch swing, and Helen asked, George, do you think my eyes are beautiful? He answered, uh-huh. In a few moments, she asked, George, do you think my hair is attractive? Again, he answered, uh-huh. A few minutes later, Helen asked, George, would you say that I have a nice figure? Once again, he answered, uh-huh. Oh, George, she said, you say the nicest things. <laughs> George, you didn't say those things. But see, it's important for us to be true, but it's also important for us to, to walk in the truth. Because there are those who will talk about the truths of Scripture, yet contradict it in which the way they live. And listen, you have to know that we as Christians, we're being watched. We're being scrutinized. Non-believers are keeping a careful watch on you, hoping that you'll slip up so that you'll have something, uh, they'll have something conveniently to hang their doubts on. So they can point to you and say, oh, well, well look at so-and-so, and he calls himself a Christian. And they're doing this, or they're doing that. So we have to be aware of the way that we live. Now, speaking the truth of love not only means discussing it and believing it and living it, it also means sharing it with others. I mean, if you see a fellow believer who's doing something that is contrary to the word of God, it's sin. I mean, it is very awkward sometimes to confront them with that, is it not? I mean, it's kind of, man, I know they're doing that. I probably should talk to them about it. But listen, it's been said well said that truth without love is brutality, but love without truth is hypocrisy. Now, kids, they really don't know how to blend truth with love, or should I say that they're innocent. They do not know how, how to show tact. And, and, and this is a great story. This goes all the way back to Charles Spurgeon when he was just a boy living with his grandfather, who was also a pastor. There was a church member named Rhodes going to his grandfather's church who used to sit regularly at the pub and he would drink beer and, and he would smoke. And his grandfather, the pastor, he was grieved by it, but he never said anything to him. Didn't do anything about it. One day upon a young Charles hearing about this man, he said to his grandfather, I'll kill old Rhodes. That I will. I shall not do anything bad, but I'll kill him though. That I will. Kind of got him riled up. And so young Spurgeon won and he confronted Rhodes there in the pub with these words. What doest thou here, Elijah, sitting with the ungodly, and you a member of a church and breaking your pastor's heart? I'm ashamed of you. I wouldn't break my pastor's heart. Man, could you imagine a young boy saying to this older man, well, it wasn't long before Rhodes showed up at the pastor's home confessing his sins and apologizing for his behavior. 
Young Spurgeon killed him indeed with truth. I'm not sure where the love was and all of that, but, but it was truth, you know. Like I said, sometimes in their innocence, the truth comes out without tact. But listen, the opposite can be true as well. There is a danger because you love someone and because you don't want to confront them or perhaps hurt their feelings that you keep it to yourself. Listen, it's better to say, do you know what, brother? Do you know what, sister? Man, what you're doing is wrong. It's kind of dangerous. You're going down a wrong path. Even though it may hurt their feelings, better to speak the truth and love than to see them go down a path of destruction. See, it's a mark of maturity when we're able to share the truth with our fellow Christians and we're able to receive it from our fellow Christians. We're told in Proverbs 27, 5 and 6, Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. So we say in a warning, I'm speaking the truth in love to you. Don't keep heading down that path. Someone once said, the streams of love must always flow within the banks of truth. That's why as a pastor, you know, as up here, you know, God's given me the opportunity to share. I have to speak the truth in love as well as to warn you about things that could potentially be harmful for you. An interesting analogy I read. I'm just one zebra warning the other zebra that there's a lion up ahead with a very hungry look on his face, ready to pounce. And I don't want you to become lunch for him. You know, and, and, and often as a pastor, I may say things about a group that doesn't sound very uplifting. I may call them a cult. You know, and people may think I'm being unloving or intolerant or, or, or indifferent. But if I'm a loving pastor then I have to speak the truth in love, especially if I see that, that what they're doing, what they're saying can potentially harm you. I mean, look at it this way. Say some guy sets up a, a, a lemonade stand in your neighborhood, but he's not selling lemonade, he's selling poison. And there's this line of kids that are lined up to get a drink of what they think is lemonade. So I walk over there and say, listen, kids, don't drink that lemonade. It's poison, it's going to hurt you. Now, someone came up to me and said, oh, come on, why are you telling those kids not to drink the lemonade? Look how good it looks. It's yellow. It's, 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 it looks, it's an ice in it. All, it looks great. Why don't you want to drink these? That's not very loving of you. I'm trying to save their lives. I think it's pretty loving. So maybe I'll be teaching on a certain subject and mention the fact that Mormonism is a cult or that Jehovah Witnesses uh, is a cult or that homosexuality is a sin. Well, why do you say it's a cult? They believe in the same God we believe in. Uh, sure, they're a little different, but, but, but why do you judge them? I'm not judging them. God will. I'm just warning you of the danger they possess. I'm just warning you of, of the poison that they may be trying to sell as lemonade to you. Listen, most homosexuals want you to accept their lifestyle as being not sinful. Mormons believe they, they're, they're all going to be gods one day and populate their own planets with multiple wives. Jehovah Witnesses, you know, believe Jesus returned in 1914, but it was invisible. And, and, and that Jesus and Michael the Archangel are, are, are one and the same. I'm warning you, that's not what the Bible teaches. And perhaps these people, man, they, they may get in your face, they may come knocking on your door, and they'll look very nice, and they'll use that Christian terminology and, and make you think that they're one of you, but they're dispensing poison. See, we need to know what we believe so we don't fall prey to these things that are out there today. So John says in verse 4, I rejoice greatly that I found some of your children walking in truth. But then he adds, and this is important, as we receive commandment from the Father in verse 4. This brings us to our next scene in our C section, commandment. God has commanded us to walk in truth and walk in love. 
Notice that John says the commandments are given by the Father. In other words, each commandment is an expression of the Father's love to us. It's not, you know, this, 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 okay, this is the law, this is what you're going to do. This. No, that's, I love you. And, and these are the things that I want you to do because it, it's good for you. And so John continues, look at verse 5 and 6. He says, and now I plead with you, lady. I like that. Lady, I'm pleading with you. Not as though I wrote a new commandment to you, but that which we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. This is love, that we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment that you have heard from the beginning. You should walk in it. Now, I'm not sure what this lady wrote in her letter, but maybe John got the impression that it wasn't very loving. And so John is saying how important it is. Listen, you continue to walk in the commandments, specifically the commandment to love one another. Thirteen times in the New Testament that phrase to love one another is used. Ten of those times are used by the Apostle John. John is saying, love one another. It's not a new commandment. You know, Jesus just gave it a new dimension when he said, love one another as I have loved you in John 13, 34. Jesus gave it a, a new dimension when he said, love your neighbor as yourself in Matthew 12, 31. So John is saying to this lady and to us, we are to love God, we're to love his truth, and we're to walk in his commandments. To love here in verse 6 in proper context is, is to, to love his commandments. It's, it's, a, it's a love, the word of God. Why? Because God reveals himself in his word. God is discovered in his word. God speaks to us in his word. God transforms us by his word. Our faith comes by hearing. And hearing what? By the word of God. See, if we're going to walk in truth and we're going to walk in love, it begins by having a love for the word of God. And I'm not talking about worshiping the Bible, you know, worshiping the God of the Bible, but understanding that the Bible is God's word to us. I love what Pastor uh, Chuck Missler said for years on his, his radio program. The great discovery is that the Bible is a message system. It's not simply 66 books penned by 40 authors over thousands of years. The Bible is an integrated whole which bears evidence of a supernatural engineering in every detail. It's a unique book. And if you look up the word unique in the Webster's Dictionary, it's one of a kind having no equal. The Bible is unique. There's no other book like it. So you ought to love the Word of God. You ought to love to read it and meditate on it and study it. But most of all, obey it. See, o- obedience is proof that I love God. Which makes me crazy when I hear people from time to time coming to me and saying, yeah, we're not married, but we're living together. Yeah, we're involved sexually. And I, I still do drugs a little bit now and then. But man, I really love God. <laughs> Give me a break. You really don't love God. Jesus said in John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. He said in John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. And he says, my commandments aren't tough. They're not burdensome to you. It's not, oh, I don't know if I can give that up, Lord, and obey you. It's kind of really tough. It's really that hard to exchange a life of crud for an abundant life, an eternal life in Jesus Christ. So John is saying to this woman, it's great that you and your kids are walking in the truth, that they love the word of God, they're keeping his commandments. But then he adds a warning. And that brings us to our third C. It's a caution. Now again, because the New Testament was not available to this, to, to this woman back then, it was still being written. So when the men would come into town preaching, not everything they were teaching was true. And so God, uh, John is giving this caution to her. Look at verse 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and an antichrist. John is warning this lady to be careful. 
to be cautious. Not everyone who says they are Christians really are. Now, just remember, we finished First John, and that was all about the Gnostics and how they believed that Jesus Christ really didn't come in the flesh. They taught that all flesh was evil, so that it would be impossible for Jesus to come in the flesh. And in fact, this, this man we talked about him before, Serinthius, taught that when Jesus walked on the earth, he didn't leave footprints on the ground because he was just spirit, kind of maybe floating, I don't know. John is cautioning her to be aware of these guys that are coming in, teaching this stuff. And maybe that's what, what was going on. And he warned that there are many deceivers around who do not have the correct doctrine of Christ. Now we need to, to realize that there's really just one way in which someone is a deceiver when it comes to fundamental Christianity. All Christian heresies and error focus on just one thing. The person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is, is the one true Redeemer and Savior. There is no other. He is God in the flesh, come to this world to save mankind. And if you deny the incarnation, then you're not a true believer in Jesus Christ. You do not have salvation. John says, if a man does not say that, no matter what else he may say or how nice he may be, he's a deceiver. Now, he's deceived as well, but John says he's an antichrist. He's against who Jesus is. And he's so concerned about this woman, what's going on. He says, so look at verse 8. Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. In other words, John is saying, lady, wake up. Look at what's going on. Be aware of what's happening. Don't be deceived. Don't, don't get pulled into their lies and be turned away from the truth. Be careful not to get caught up in things that aren't found in the Word of God. In other words, you, you, you come so close to, so far in your relationship with the Lord, don't turn away now and start believing the lie that those are teaching that are trying to deceive you. He says, do not lose those things we worked for. What do you lose as a, as a Christian? If you get involved in, in, in maybe the, the liberalism of today and, and maybe some of the, the things, the extra biblical things that are out there today or widespread today, will you lose your salvation? No, not at all. I mean, not if you're truly born again, of course. That rests upon the finished work of the cross that Christ did for you. John's not talking about salvation here, but reward. You're not going to lose your place in heaven, not your redemption, not your part in the body of Christ, but you lose a great deal. As John makes it clear, you lose your full reward, he says. In other words, you're wasting your time involved in things that, that are not important. In the end, you've wasted the time that you could have, have worked towards you know, doing greater things and had a greater reward. Let me give you an example. I was raised Roman Catholic. I was taught that praying the rosary, reciting the Lord's Prayer over and over again, I did that once a week. I did it, you know, that, that would gain my entrance into heaven without having to spend time of suffering and pain and the temporary fires of purgatory. Now I've come to faith in Christ. You know, I know that that doctrine is wrong. It's not what the Bible teaches. But now if I decide that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do the rosary an hour a day, I'm not going to lose my salvation, okay? Not my redemption, that was paid through Christ. But look at all the time I'm wasting where I could actually be praying for someone for an hour instead of just reciting the Lord's Prayer over and over again for an hour. Or the time I'm wasting where I could be ministering to someone for an hour. You see, other traditions of men, even lighting of the candles and praying for people who have died to be freed from purgatory, it's a waste of time. One Commentator puts it this way, you throw away precious moments and years involved in that which is utterly worthless and which will be displayed at last as wood, hay, and stubble to be consumed in the fire of God's searching gaze. John's saying, man, you get caught up in these things, you're not going to receive this full reward. You're not going to receive all that God has for you. 
You get involved in something that, that's not grounded in the word, man, your efforts are a waste. You're just building this, this facade. It may look very good on the outside, but in the end it will crumble and find no acceptance before God. Now, how do you know if you're building a facade or not? Well, look at verse 9. John tells us, Whoever transgresses and does not abide in the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ is both the Father and the Son. What word, one word jumps out at you in this verse? It's the word doctrine. It appears twice. There should be a clue to us that doctrine is important. Every now and then you'll hear people say, well, doctrine really doesn't matter. We like to go to a place where they don't talk about doctrine. We just love one another. Listen, <laughs> you know, you have no basis for love and fellowship outside of correct doctrine. This goes back to the same way people are deceived. They're deceived about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus is God in the flesh, come down to earth to redeem mankind. Now, I don't know if you guys caught it this last Friday morning, noon, around time, but I was absolutely blessed when I listened to Franklin Graham give the benediction at the inaugural address. I was just, just blown away by it. I, I mean, he mentioned that it was raining, you know, first mentioned it was raining, and rain is a sign of blessing from God, and that, that he prayed that God would pour his blessing upon our new president. But then he read from Scripture, and he read these verses. It was First Timothy chapter 2, 1 through 6. Let me read it to you. He reads, Therefore I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. Okay, that took care of, man, we're praying for the president, we want to have peace, lives, and peaceful transition, all that. But then he gets to the gospel, verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. I mean, that's a drop the microphone moment right then and there. Is it not, you know, in your face, there's a gospel right there. And then he closed with 1 Timothy 1.17. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. I mean, in those few verses is the clearest teaching of the work of Jesus Christ for us, what we must do to be saved. Franklin read, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. Who is God our Savior? The man Christ Jesus. What did God our Savior do? He gave himself a ransom for all. Man, if you wanted to share the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of redemption, the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of salvation, incarnation, it's all in these verses. Man, what a, a Holy Spirit-inspired you know, reading of those verses. I was cheering like I was at a football game. Yes, yes, yes. That got me so excited. Because there's so many of these other faiths that are there. They have this problem with the idea that God became a man in the person of Jesus Christ. They have a problem that Jesus is our Savior, that He is alone is, is God who can save us. See, He's the only one that can bridge the gap between sinful man and a holy God. When He died upon the cross, He put His hand on the Father and His hand on sinful man, and He reconciled us to God. And if you don't believe this, then John says, you do not have God. John is saying, lady, this is how you can know that these men come into your home. This is how you can know about these men coming to your home. He says, who do they say that Jesus is? Listen, when people come to your door, they come a-knocking. That's the same question that you need to ask them. Who do you say that Jesus is? The Mormons, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, who come knocking at your door, man, they're twisted when it comes to who Jesus is. The Jehovah Witnesses, they do not believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. In fact, they go door-to-door telling people Jesus is not God. 
so too, during the time that John wrote this letter, Gnosticism had fully run its course. They denied the deity of Jesus Christ. Jehovah Witness doctrine is just ancient Gnosticism. John is making it clear that when you have problems with the incarnation, if you have problems with the idea that God became flesh in Jesus Christ, then you do not have the right doctrine of Christ and you do not have God, period. You do not have the Son, you don't have the Father, you don't have the Holy Spirit. Why? Because you have a wrong view of who Jesus is. And if you don't have the, the, the Son, then you do not have the Father. Because the Father is revealed in the Son. The Father is known in the Son. And the Father is known through the Son. And you can't come to the Father except through the Son, Jesus Christ. Now this brings us to our number four in our, in our C section, our conduct. How then should we conduct ourselves when it comes to these false teachers? Look at verse 10 and 11. There's been a lot of misunderstanding about these verses. Verse 10 says, If anyone comes to you and does not bring this doctrine... Do not receive him into your house, nor greet him. For he who greets him shares in his evil deeds. So the question is asked, should we let Mormons, should we let Jehovah Witnesses in our homes to talk to them about Jesus? I think it's, it's good for, understand, for us to, important for us to understand the context and what is happening in this verse. John is basically telling the elect lady, don't let them, the guys at her time, come into your house to preach and to teach. Don't let them come into your house and let them sleep or eat or show them hospitality. Absolutely nothing. Now, he's not necessarily forbidding Christians of today from inviting Jehovah Witnesses into their homes and witnessing to them. I don't think that's what John had in mind when he wrote these words. But I do believe that it's important that if you invite a Jehovah Witness into your home or a Mormon into your home, that you are grounded in the word and knowledgeable about what they believe and what you believe. Or else they could, that twist you into a puzzle. You know, that gets you in this, this, you know, roundabout, you know, conversation and completely confuse and frustrate you and it can be dangerous. And if you're a new Christian and you don't have enough knowledge, then, then I would say, man, invite a brother or sister strong in the Lord that maybe knows something about, you know, what they teach and, and they have a good grasp of scripture and, and man, invite them to meet with you. Invite them into your home. Share with them. Listen, they knocked on your door. They came to your house, so they need to listen to what you had to say, you know? Now, there's nothing wrong with being polite. Let me say this. There's nothing wrong with being polite to Jehovah Witnesses. You don't need to fear them. Remember when I first got saved and, and I'd been learning the Word and I saw them on our neighborhood? I was like, my heart said, they're here. Okay. okay. I'm going to say, okay, what am I going to say? What am I going to say? What am I to say? You know? Now, I, I, I welcome it. I'm excited. Come on in. i got something to say to you. But, but, but then it was like, you know, there's this fear. You know, like, like they're going to come in, it's going to be like this Star Wars things or something. You no, know, you, you know, these are not the droids you're looking for. Jesus is not the God you think he is. You know, Jesus is not the God you think It's not going to happen. <laughs> they're the ones that are lost. They can't see. They're blind. And God has given you the opportunity to show them that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, that no man comes to the Father except through Jesus Christ, through him. But you need to understand there's a spiritual battle taking place. And you need, to be, be, you need to be prayed up and you need to be walking in the Spirit. But you also need to show them that they are human beings from whom Christ died. You need to show them love and truth. You know, when you smile and, and you're nice and you say, oh, come on in, and you give them something to drink and you start telling them about Jesus, it freaks them out. They don't know how to, 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 to take that because they're used to getting the door slammed in their face. They're used to being yelled at. They expect that. In fact, they expect to be ridiculed and they feel as if they, they you know, oh, we were persecuted, you know, uh, for being a Jehovah Witness. And they, you know, they're, they're excited about it. They go back and tell, oh, I was persecuted. 
They get a few more brownie points. You need to be nice to them. In fact, I, I remind you of the story about two Jehovah Witnesses going door to door and they knocked on the door of this Christian woman who was not happy to see them. She told them in no uncertain terms that she did not want to hear their message and slammed the door in their faces. To her surprise, however, the door did not close and in fact bounced back open. She tried again, really put her back into it and slammed the door again with the same result, the door bounced back open. Convinced these rude people were sticking their foot in the door, she reared back to give it a one final slam to teach them a lesson when one of them said, ma'am, before you do that again, you need to move your cat. You know, It's a story I heard. I don't think it's true, okay? You, you cat lovers are going, how could they do that to a cat? Here's my point. What if every time they knocked on the door of a Christian, we were nice and polite and kind and considerate with them and shared the gospel with them and was ready to give them a reason for the hope that lies within us? I believe we would see, we would see so many more Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons coming to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and as our Savior. Instead of saying, oh yeah, I know about you, 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 you cult and slam the door in their faces. That's not the way to go. And that's not what John meant for us to do. See, if that was what John meant for us to do, then, then once we discover that someone is not a Christian and we refuse to talk to them, let alone invite them in, then we'd be known as what? Very offensive people. And no one would get saved. They certainly wouldn't know us as Christians because they know we're Christians, what? By our love. If we've never extended our friendship to those of another religion who may be visiting in our country. We may be acting in defense of the truth, but certainly not manifesting anything of the grace and the love that Jesus has called us to have. So then what is John saying here in verse 10 and 11? I don't believe he's saying you can't have them in your house. But what it should be saying more technically is that you shouldn't give them money. You shouldn't support them. You shouldn't try to help them out in what they're doing, passing out their tracts or allowing their tracts to be placed in front of your, your place of business. You shouldn't be giving them phone numbers of your friends. You know, you're not supposed to do that kind of thing. In other words, we're not to receive these people in such a way as to imply that we are authenticating or accepting or agreeing with their teaching. Again, in those days, motels didn't exist and inns were very few and far between. So when these teachers traveled, they stayed in private homes. So this woman was confused. Should I open the door to these guys or not? And John is saying to these guys at her time, don't even open the doors. Don't even greet them. For you greet some shares in his evil deeds. Now, that did not rule out, okay, the need for common courtesy, for a gracious approach to the person, or for the meeting of emergency needs. We know that the parable of the Good Samaritan makes it very clear that if someone is in need, anyone, it doesn't make a difference who he is, we need to help them. But as long as we can make it clear that we're treating him graciously, thoughtfully, kindly, as a fellow human being, but definitely not endorsing his wrong ideas, that it's perfectly proper to have some kind of contact with them, even a degree of friendship. But we're not to share in the wicked work. That's the idea that John sets before us. It was a different culture, different time, different setting. So, John says, don't support them, don't help them, because it could mean that they would make inroads into the church, into your life. We've seen, number one, a compliment. Number two, a compliment. Number three, a, co- a commandment, rather. Number three, a caution. Number four, our conduct. Finally, number five, we have the conclusion. Look at verses 13 and 14. Having many things to write to you, I did not wish to do so with paper and ink, but I hope to come to you and speak face to face, that our joy may be full. The children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. Now, back then, you know, it was difficult to write 
mail wasn't certain. You know, I, I suppose the Apostle John was like most of us, you know, in the old days, we'd have to sit down and actually write a letter. We didn't like to do that. Certainly they don't have the email like, like we have, you know, that makes it so much easier. But John here says, man, I would have loved just to sit down and talk with you face to face. I mean, I have so much more I want to say to you, and it would be so great, but, but this is so important for me to give you this encouragement and caution you. Love and truth. That's what it's about. See, he concludes with sending a greeting from the family he's apparently staying with. Verse 13, the children of your elect sister greet you. Amen. He tells her of the hope that he has to visit her soon. Speaks of this special joy. You know, there's a special joy that comes when you can get, have face-to-face Christian fellowship. John, over and over again, as we saw in First John, was so concerned about joy that our joy may be full. And here in Second John, he hasn't changed it. I hope to come to you and speak face-to-face that our joy may be full. Listen, I so enjoy. I mean, I enjoy Sunday mornings. I mean, when we can gather together face-to-face. But I love the men's, men's prayer breakfast. I mean, yesterday morning... We had the greatest men's prayer breakfast. I think we started at 8.30, and around 9.30 we finally got to prayer. I mean, we just, the fellowship, we were digging in God's Word and talking about God's Word. It was just this fellowship. It was so great just to sit down face to face. And we do that at our men's study. We do that at our women's study. Have that opportunity. You guys do that when you hang out together, talking about the things of God, the doctrines of God. Making sure we're all heading down that same narrow path and not swerving from side to side. Whether it's a men's study, the woman's study, or, or today, Sunday morning, we need that fellowship of believers. We need to come together face-to-face, dig into God's Word. In fact, we're told, and this is in the New Living Translation, Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, think of ways to encourage one another, to outbursts of love and good deeds. And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage and warn each other, especially now that the day of his coming back again is drawing near. How can we encourage and warn each other and talk about the Lord's return if we don't gather together and do it? Man, if there was ever a time that we as believers need to be coming together, it's today. And instead of putting each other down, we need to draw together in love around the person of Christ. We need to study the Word of God. No truth from error. I mean, God has something for a group that He will not give to any one individual. And I have to admit, one of the reasons that I love to teach the Word of God, it's kind of selfish, okay? Because I I grow in the knowledge of His Word as I share it. And then when we talk about it afterwards, I'm getting new truths about God. Oh yeah, when you said this point, Pastor, this is real, and this is what it talks about. Yeah, that's right. And, And I get even more excited about it. So as we close, John answers the lady's question by basically saying, listen, Jesus is the answer. He always has been, always will be. Even if many people today don't know what the question is, Jesus is the answer. He is the truth. He embodies all that is true, all that is right. And he said in speaking to his father, you know, your word is truth. You can count on it. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the father but by me. Listen, as we close, if you didn't know who Jesus is when you came in this morning, if you didn't know that Jesus is the answer, now you do. And I would encourage you to respond to what you know. Certainly you're going to be held responsible for what you know. So I pray that you surrender your life to Jesus Christ. He loves you. He died on the cross for you. Rose again from the dead so that you might have that life in him. If you just come to him and surrender your life to Jesus Christ. For us that know the Lord, man, let's dig in the word. Let's love the word. Let's follow the word. Let's obey the word. Because the word is truth. And it's our God that we learn from his word. And so uh, don't be afraid of those uh, cults that come in knocking at your door. 
take the sword of the Spirit with you, and God will bless it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you that we can hold a copy of it in our hands, and, and through your Holy Spirit, you speak to our hearts. And really, that's what it's about. It's about our fellowship with you through your word. And Lord, I pray as we go our way this week, Lord, that we would fall more in love with your word that we'd fall more in love with you through your word, Father, more accurately. Lord, we pray that you'd give us those opportunities to share, Lord, that we wouldn't, wouldn't turn away, Lord, when confronted, but we would take those steps of faith, trusting in you, Lord, and the power of your Holy Spirit to do that which you've called us to do. Thank you for your love, your grace. Thank you for the work that you're doing in each of our lives, Lord. We, we give you all the glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.